0: To Luke chapter 2. Luke chapter 2. Our focus is going to be on verses 41 through 52. We're going to be focusing in particular on the, uh, what this lesson is called The Boy. We're going to be focusing in on Jesus's experience at the age of 12 at the temple in Jerusalem. You know, there's actually a lot of, uh, fake Gospels out there that you can get your hands on and read. And one way you can quickly tell um, the d- difference between the Gospels that are of uh, inspired origin versus Gospels that are of uh, uninspired origin is that the uninspired Gospels love the childhood of Jesus. They, they love to fill in the gaps, so to speak, of this period of Jesus' life that we know so little. So think about this. Jesus is estimated to have lived approximately thirty-three years on this earth. And his ministry, his life in the public eye of, of working in ministry, lasts approximately three years. And so the bulk of the the four gospels is focused on. 3 years of Jesus's life from roughly the age of 30 to 33 and for the other 29 or so years of his life we have very little information. In fact, you you have the events of his birth and of his early childhood that we've talked about the past couple of weeks that that cover Matthew chapter 1, parts of Matthew chapter 2, uh, and then the first two chapters of Luke. And then after that, we jump ahead to him at 12 years old. We have one small story, and we have nothing else until he's 30. So there is this large gap in Jesus' life, and a lot of um, uninspired Gospels, like the Gospel of Thomas, and the Gospel of Judas, and some like that, try to provide stories that tell of things Jesus did in his childhood that just aren't part of inspired Scripture. All we've got is this one story and it is one of my favorites in the life of Jesus because I think there's a lot you can unpack from it, especially since you're talking about Jesus as a 12 year old boy. So let's read our text for tonight and then we'll jump into uh, examining it and and considering uh, what's going on here and even some application for ourselves. So Luke chapter 2 beginning in verse 41. Now his parents, that's referring to Jesus' parents, went to Jerusalem every year (coughs) at the feast of the Passover. And when he was 12 years old, they went up according to custom. And when the feast was ended, as they were returning, the boy Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem. His parents did not know it, but supposing him to be in the group, they went a day's journey. But then they began to search for him among their relatives and acquaintances. And when they did not find him, they returned to Jerusalem, searching for him. After three days, they found him in the temple, sitting among the teachers, listening to them and asking them questions. And all who heard him were amazed at his understanding and his answers. Sorry, I lost my place. And when his parents saw him, They were astonished. And his mother said to him, Son, why have you treated us so? Behold, your father and I have been searching for you in great distress. And he said to them, Why were you looking for me? Did you not know that I must be in my father's house? And they did not understand the saying that he spoke to them. And when he went down with them, and and he went down with them, and came to Nazareth, and was submissive to them, and his mother treasured up all these things in her heart, and Jesus increased in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man. What I want to do tonight is pose a few questions on the text for us to consider and, and to ponder and to think about. And I want to start with this one. Why did Jesus' family travel to Jerusalem on this occasion? Now, this is an easy one to answer, but I want us to consider the, uh, uh, the bigger picture here. Obviously, they traveled to Jerusalem... For Passover. And what that should mean to us, what what we can gain from that, is that they went to Jerusalem because it was commanded. We need to understand the importance of Passover here. Passover is one of three annual festivals Jewish men were required to celebrate in Jerusalem. See, Mosaic Law gave this, this command. It's in Deuteronomy chapter 16 and verse 16. Three times a year, all your males shall appear before the Lord your God at the place that he will choose, at the Feast of Unleavened Bread, at the Feast of Weeks, and at the Feast of Booths. Now, I know it didn't say Passover there. What you need to understand is that Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread were all one feast. They, excuse me, they, they were connected together, and they were celebrated in conjunction with one another passover kicked off your feast of unleavened bread essentially and so you you have these three times a year that that all Jewish males were supposed to appear before the lord where wherever he set up his presence and the temple in jerusalem was that place because that's where prior to its destruction the ark of the covenant resided within that most holy place and so it was commanded by god that jewish males such as jesus's father joseph would need to present himself at the temple and if you recall passover commemorates god's deliverance of his people out of egypt and it is the opening feast as i mentioned of the seven day feast of unleavened bread which by new testament times was popularly called collectively the feast of passover so according to Mosaic Law, all Jewish males were commanded to celebrate the feast before the Lord at the place He chose. The place God chose to establish His presence among His people was the temple in Jerusalem. That means that Jesus' parents went to Jerusalem simply because the Lord commanded it. I think it's important, I think it's important that we acknowledge the heritage that Jesus' parents are setting for Him. Because at this point in, in history, there are Jews scattered all over the world. When You've you got to remember that, that uh, there was this time period in the Old Testament. You can go back to, to um, uh, the, the days of, of Daniel, and you can read about how the, they're in captivity, and, and they're, they're not going to come back until the days of Ezra and Nehemiah. And you ha- now have this point in time where Jews are scattered all over the known world. And for some of them, it's a great distance to come to Jerusalem. And so it's going to become, for many Jewish people, something they stop doing. They stop the habit of going to Jerusalem. But not Jesus's parents. Jesus's parents are so concerned with observing every command And they're going to instill that into him as their child. So not only do I notice here that Jesus' family went to Jerusalem because it's commanded, but I pick up on an important word, because it was their custom. They also went to Jerusalem because it was their custom. You See that in Luke chapter 2 and verse 41. And and I think that's important. They, They went every year. They made this their habit. They made this their tradition. They made this something that wasn't just a one-time thing. It was a consistent, habitual practice of obedience to God's Word. And this habit evidences itself in the ministry of Jesus. One thing I find fascinating, do you know why we surmise that Jesus' ministry lasted three years? the number of Passovers that we can count in his life. And here's what's fascinating. Whenever you come across a Passover in the ministry of Jesus, and in the biographies that we have recorded, guess where he's going? He's always going to Jerusalem. Now you could say, oh, chalk that up to him being obedient to his father, and, I, and, and you're right, you're correct. But I can't help, I can't help but go, wait, he also had a family that taught him obedience. He had a family that instilled in him the practice of doing things the way God told him to do. And so if you actually read through the life of Jesus, you'll see that he traveled to Jerusalem for the Passover shortly after his first miracle, and that trip is recorded in John chapter 2. He traveled to Jerusalem for an unnamed feast that apparently wasn't Passover, John chapter 5. He traveled to Jerusalem for the Feast of Booths, In John chapter 7, he traveled to Jerusalem for the Feast of Dedication in John chapter 10, and he traveled to Jerusalem for the Passover again, the one that took place immediately before his crucifixion, which is recorded in Matthew 26, Mark 14, Luke 22, and John 11 through 13. Jesus didn't just go to Jerusalem for Passover. Most every uh, feast that's mentioned in Mosaic Law, Jesus made a trip to Jerusalem for. And we have that recorded for us. And so we see Jesus has the habit of going to Jerusalem for these feasts. And and, and I can't help but believe that even though he's the Son of God and would do this out of obedience to his Father, that he learned something important from his parents. And I think we need to, to recognize that our children, that the next generation learns from our habits And they're more likely to ingrain and instill a particular spiritual habit based on what they see demonstrated in the lives of their parents. So this fact that they not only are doing it just because God commanded it, but they're making it their custom, that they're making it habitual, I think is worth mentioning because it can have an impact on how we parent our children. If the parents of the Son of God, the earthly parents of the Son of God, felt it important enough to create habits, shouldn't good spiritual habits, then shouldn't we? Because I I imagine that might be one of the reasons God chose them to be the parents of his child. So I think that's worth pointing out. Now, the other thing that we really need to give some attention to here is the age of Jesus, which you can clearly see he's 12 years old in Luke chapter 2 verse 42. The significance of this age is is the fact that he's approaching manhood in Jewish culture. Now you and I, when does a boy become a man in our culture? (laughs) Does a boy become a man in our culture? Might be the more pertinent question, So we have some standards. We'll throw out the number 18. That will be on the young end of things. And the only only reason we will throw out 18 is because, hey, now they can serve actively in the military, right? And vote. Thank you. Then we throw out 21. And the only reason we throw out 21 is because they're able to legally drink. Oh, you can get married younger than 21. Some states. That's a state issue, not a federal. Then we'll throw out the number 25. Do you know why we throw out 25? Car insurance. That's the silliest one, isn't it? Now we should probably throw out 26 because that's when you come off your parents' insurance now. And we might throw out 30. We might throw out 40. We don't have a set definition of adulthood anymore. But in the Jewish culture of Jesus' day, it was 13. Now, I want you to think for a moment. How many 13-year-olds do you think could qualify as adults today. Jesus is 12 here, but he is already training for adulthood. In particular, at the age of 12, at the age of 12, Jesus would be learning his father's trade. As you prepare for adulthood, you're preparing for a career, you're preparing for an occupation, you're preparing for what you're going to do when you start your own family, and in the context of Jesus' life, he's being trained to do what by his father? What was his father? Carpenter. What I find so fascinating in Scripture, just a little nuance that that I I didn't notice for many years, you can go to Matthew chapter 13 and verse verse 55, and you have Jesus being rejected at the synagogue in Nazareth. Hometown synagogue. They don't want nothing to do with him. And actually what, what they end up saying is, is not this whose son? The carpenter's son. Is not this the carpenter's son? The, the, the son of Mary, and we got, we got his mother Mary here, we got his brothers here, and named some of, the, some of his siblings. We have that recognition that he is a descendant of a person with a particular occupation. But what I find fascinating is you go over to Mark's gospel. Mark chapter 6. You have the exact same incident. Rejected at the Nazareth synagogue. And in Mark chapter 6 and verse 3, when they question his identity, they don't say, is this the carpenter's son? They say, is not this the carpenter? In other words, What I find fascinating about this is to me that's an indicator that Jesus finished his apprenticeship. He finished his carpentry carpentry training and before he entered into ministry, he was a carpenter. He wasn't just a carpenter's son. That may not be that big of a deal, but it's a reminder to me that Jesus was human like me. That at one phase of his life, he had a a job just like me. That he wasn't just an itinerant preacher, teacher, healer, miracle worker for his entire life. That he had to work. And guess what? He had to work harder than I do. So I think it's worth mentioning that that at, at the age of 12, Jesus is learning to be a carpenter like his dad, and it's something that Mark chapter 6 seems to infer that he brought to completion as a career. But here's the other thing that's worth mentioning, something that's significant about this age. At 12, Jesus would have been preparing to become a member of the spiritual community. You ever heard the phrase bar mitzvah? Does anybody know what bar mitzvah means? what was that not exactly that would probably be a good English translation to some degree son of, the law. son of the law or son of the covenant either one it's indicating that you are now a member of the covenant community it's that moment that you tra- when you celebrate your bar mitzvah you are transitioning from childhood to adulthood in the community of faith They also have the bat mitzvah, which is for the daughters. But 13, you are a full-fledged member of the community of faith. You can start reading from the uh, scrolls in the synagogue. You have a new standing in that religious community. Jesus is in training for his bar mitzvah at the age of 12, according to the customs of that day. He might have understood gone some rigorous program of instruction and, and some preparation for, for this um, transition. Probably not in the same way that modern bar mitzvahs are celebrated or, or, or what has evolved there, but there would have been some sort of training, according to the historical records, training for being a adult, an adult member in the community of faith. I think that's worth mentioning because consider where Jesus is. Here's this young man who is training to become a a member of the community of faith, and now he's at the temple. All this is probably a little more interesting to him than it ever had been before. He's probably understanding sacrifices better than he ever did before. He's probably understanding laws better than he ever did before because he's being taught back at his local synagogue about God's covenant. So I think some of that might be in play here as Jesus is at the temple surrounded by the experts in teaching God's Word. Now, That's where things get interesting. His age contributes to a couple of factors that we'll expound on throughout this lesson. But what gets interesting is that we have another one of those moments right here in this story where you're reminded that Jesus is just like you. And it's the fact that he got separated from his family. Parents, how many of you have left a child somewhere unintentionally and realized it down the road raise your hands come on this is I'm not calling the police one wonder away that counts I can't tell you how many times not so much here but when I was a minister down Pensacola I'd be closing up the church building at the end of a worship service and there'd be a kid wandering around because the parents thought that kid was riding with those parents and they were going to eat somewhere It happens and that's what happens here this is this is a moment many of us can relate to either because we were the child that got left behind or we were the parents that left the child behind and I'm I'm fascinated by this how did Jesus get separated from his parents well there are two factors here that I think are worth mentioning. First, Jesus got separated from his family because his desire was at the temple. When you look here at the text, it seems to indicate that Jesus deliberately chose to stay in, the, in Jerusalem despite the fact that his family was departing. So, so look at that language there in Luke chapter 2, verse 43. And when the feast was ended... As they were returning, the boy Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem. It almost comes across in in our English language like there was a deliberate decision here. And, and, And maybe it was. But I don't think this was an act of disobedience. I don't think Jesus was trying to be a child who made life miserable for his parents or he was trying to get away from his parents or he was just flat out disobeying them. I don't think that's what's happening at all. I think Jesus' staying at the temple was an act of desire, as if he was thirsting for what the temple provided, particularly in the realm of studying. In regards to his educational opportunities prior to the temple visit, they were limited. Have you ever gone somewhere where you suddenly realized you had access to more knowledge and you just wanted to absorb it? I've been to some libraries. I did a semester of graduate work at the, what is now called Hargan School of Theology in Memphis. And their library is fascinating to me. It's, it's not a huge library, but it's a decent-sized library. And the books in there... They don't have a section for literature. They don't have a section for uh, science. It's all biblical studies and related topics. It was fun. For somebody whose passion was in that field to go into that library, I could just go in there and browse and sit for hours. I, I wonder if... Jesus is experiencing that. He's been going to the local synagogue. He's receiving training at the local synagogue. He's worshiping at the local synagogue. And now here he is, coming of age, at 12, and he's at the temple. And he's got the best minds in his community of faith right there, talking with him, asking him questions, studying with him. You, you ever been around somebody who was so knowledgeable on a subject that you just wanted to sit there and talk and ask questions and listen for hours? The first time I met Paul Krippner was as a preschool guard. So it was middle of the week, and I just sat down with him on a couch out there in the lobby as, as he was you know, sitting there doing his security duties for preschool, and we just started talking NASA. I didn't get any work done that day. Because I was just fascinated at what he could tell me about this realm that I know so little about. You ever experienced that? Maybe that's what Jesus is going through here. As he's there with the scribes and the teachers of the law. And he's getting this spiritual education that is not readily accessible to him back in Nazareth. I think maybe there's an element here an element where, where Jesus is just hungering and thirsting for righteousness. And so he doesn't want to leave. There's a, this desire, this passion to just absorb all that he can. See, I think it's important to realize that Jesus didn't remain in Jerusalem to shop in its markets or to enjoy the big city life. He was found, as verse 46 of Luke 2 tells us, He was found in the temple, sitting among the teachers, listening to them and asking them questions. He wasn't there for entertainment. He wasn't there for shopping. He wasn't there for recreation. He stayed there because that's where his father's presence was in the form of the Ark of the Covenant when the Ark of the Covenant existed, to be fair. So I think there's an element here that Jesus gets separated out of his own natural desire to be at the temple. But he also got separated because of this caravan situation. This might be hard for us to grasp, because we don't travel quite like this. But you have to remember, this is a religious feast that every adult male was expected to attend in Jerusalem. So here's what happens. In these communities like Nazareth, all the families are packing up. They know how long it takes to get to to Jerusalem. It's going to be a multiple-day journey. And you, you live in a town near relatives, so it's quite likely that they kind of pack up and travel together. They're making the journey as one big group. And as you know, if you're ever just running from this church building to go out to eat with some some family friends that have kids your age, what ends up naturally happening is your kids want to ride together. And so it's quite likely that as they're making this journey across uh, across Galilee and, and, and probably crossing the Jordan River, going down through Perea and crossing back over at Jericho to enter Jer- uh, Judea and, and Jerusalem, the kids are probably running off doing stuff. You know, they're traveling on foot or by, or, or by animals to some degree, and, and their kids are probably just running around having a great time, and they're all collectively keeping an eye on them. So probably what happens here is when it's time to leave, Mary and Joseph, they've got their kids, and it's quite possible, quite likely, that some of Jesus' siblings have been born by now. And, and it may not just be Mary, Joseph, and Jesus anymore. And, and they may have an assumption that, oh, Jesus is up there with cousin so-and-so, or, or Jesus is up there with, those, with our neighbor so-and-so. And, and it's not until they get to their stopping point that night That they realize Jesus isn't with any of the people they thought he was with. So, this caravan situation, it it sounds so crazy that Joseph and Mary could misplace the Son of God. Great minds think alike. It's so crazy that that's possible. But when you think about the context of this traveling situation and, and the, the natural assumptions that we make, it's possible. I wonder how they prayed that night. <laughs> now think about that. God, I, I'm sorry we misplaced your kid. Please help us find him. What, what would that prayer feel like as parents? And that's when we go into search mode with Joseph and Mary. And we read in the text that after three days, they found Jesus. Now, what does that mean? Was Jesus on his own for three full days? What's going on here? Does that amount to child abuse, child neglect, something like that? Well, let's look at our options regarding this three days When we read that in Acts chapter two and verse 46, it could be a reference to the fact that Jesus was found after Mary and Joseph searched the city of Jerusalem for three days. that once they got back to Jerusalem, it took them three days to search through Jerusalem to find Jesus. And that if that were the case, then we would need to understand. Jesus' statement to them when when he rhetorically said, Why were you looking for me? Did you not know that I must be in my father's house? If it took them three days to search through Jerusalem, then when he says that, it's like he's saying, Why didn't you search here first? But there is another option in understanding these three days. And it could be that Jesus was found on the third day after his family's departure from Jerusalem. In this regard, you have to think like this. Joseph and Mary traveled for one day, reached their destination, realized Jesus isn't with them. So guess what? How long is it going to take them to get back to Jerusalem? Another day. That's your second day. And on that third day, they find him. The next morning, after they've made it back to Jerusalem, they find him. See, it may not be the situation where they didn't go to the temple first. They may have gone to the temple first. They may have known that that's where Jesus is going to be if he's in Jerusalem. We'll go check the temple. And they may have gone there first once they arrived in Jerusalem. But still, Jesus is on his own for a couple of nights at the very least. But I don't think it's that big of a deal. For this reason, who's... Mary's relative that was pregnant before her. Who's her husband? Zacharias? What's his occupation? Where do priests work? It's quite possible that Jesus was staying with family while he was stuck there. It may be that, that Jesus was able to connect with that side of his family and therefore he was well taken care of and well protected and it, there wasn't this big, hey, he's sleeping alone on the streets like an orphan. That's possible at least. And certainly there are probably other relatives in and around Jerusalem. And don't forget, Bethlehem's only five miles away and that is the origin of Joseph as a descendant of David. So he might have relatives even there. And so it, it's it's quite likely that Jesus wasn't just abandoned and alone in the big city, but that he had family that he could fall back on during this time. And it's quite possible that Mary and Joseph found him very quickly once they returned back to Jerusalem, that they didn't actually have to spend three days walking the streets of, of Jerusalem looking for him and peeking through every door. I bet Mary and Joseph knew exactly where to find him once they got back because I bet while they were there he never left the temple. And so while we can easily be hard on Mary and Joseph here, maybe we should give them a little bit of grace in the situation. And that leads me to the next thing I want to talk about. As we look at this temple scenario, we have Jesus here with these religious elite scholars. And when you picture Jesus in the temple, who do you picture teaching who? There's artwork on the screen behind this title, um, and I've labeled all the artwork. Just it, I like to use these pieces of art to just kind of... Give some imagery of what's going on. Also, it tells us a lot about our, our assumptions about these stories. If you look at that artwork, it is Jesus above the word was, standing on that pillar with his hand raised, and all of the scholars are down below. It seems to indicate that Jesus is the one teaching at 12 years old. Here's another picture that's coming up, and even in this picture, you've got Jesus in the center uh, in in the in the uh, in a more upper position, everybody's attention is on him as if he's the one teaching them. Growing up, that's how it was always conveyed to me: is that Jesus is at the temple, twelve years of age, and he's the one instructing all of the 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 scholars of the day. But is that really what is happening here? Look again at the text of Luke chapter two, particularly at verse forty-six and verse forty-seven. It tells us that Jesus was sitting among the teachers, listening to them and asking them questions. Who's teaching who? To me, that sounds like Jesus is a student, listening and asking questions. What throws us off is verse 47. And all who heard him were amazed at his understanding and his answers. That amazement doesn't have to mean that he's the one doing the teaching. It just means they're amazed at how he responds to the questions they ask. That his knowledge, his intelligence, his application, whatever it may be, just seems way above his age. I like the way I've got a couple different authors that I'm going to quote up here that I I thought did a uh, presented their case very well this one comes from the truth for today commentary David Roper writes this do not misinterpret this scene Jesus had not taken over the class he was not teaching the teachers it was a typical religious class of those days with both teachers and students asking and answering questions The amazement centered in the fact that a a 12-year-old had so much interest in spiritual realities and such an unusual grasp of spiritual principles. Another commentator said it this way, Jesus began by listening to their teaching, then proceeded to ask questions. This led to further interchange in which the teachers put questions to him. They were amazed at the quality both of his questions and of his answers. The idea here is that Jesus was still the student. The amazement, the amazement comes from the fact that at 12 years old, he is so passionate and he is so intelligent. And so I think it's worth talking about who's teaching who here because it affects our perspective of the story. The text doesn't indicate that Jesus took over the class. The text indicates that Jesus was a student in the class, so to speak. Now, the next thing I want to ask you is this, about Jesus' response to his parents. Because here he is, sitting among these scholars, sitting among the scribes, the teachers of the law, and his parents show up and look. Look back at Luke chapter 2, verse 48. When his parents saw him, they were astonished. And his mother said, Son, why have you treated us so? Behold, your father and I have been searching for you in great distress. And he said to them, Why were you looking for me? Did you not know that I must be in my father's house? The thing I want us to ponder is is whether or not Jesus was being disrespectful here to his parents. Now, the simple, easy answer for us to say is no, because Jesus never sinned, and disrespecting your parents is sin. That's the easy answer, but I want you to think through it with me for a moment. Here's the thing about this scenario. Jesus' mom is... Can you imagine the emotions she's going through right now? Put yourself in her shoes. One one of my first Sundays here after getting hired, Micah was only three years old when we moved here. And we couldn't find her. It was Sunday night after service. We couldn't find her. This was a new facility to her. It was new to us. And compared to where we came from, it was three times as large. And let's face it it can be a maze at times because there's not like one easy to maneuver hallway you've got all these things jutting off and different stories that aren't all on top of each other and I got panicky I was running through here yelling her name because for all I knew there could have been somebody that visited that night that snagged her and took off and I wouldn't know it and we didn't have a security team We didn't have all these security cameras. It turned out that one of her little friends had found out that she needed to use the restroom and escorted her down the preschool hallway to use the restrooms down there. and didn't tell us. And they didn't turn the lights on either so it was dark all the way down there. And I can remember that urgency and that fear that came over me that my only child at that time could be missing. That's what Mary's going through. Up until the moment that she sees Jesus, she's overwhelmed with anxiety. And you know what? When I found Micah, when we finally discovered her, it's unfair. She wasn't doing anything wrong. She just needed to use the restroom. And someone escorted her there. Someone by the name of Annabelle, for the record. (laughs) Jesus wasn't necessarily doing anything wrong, but just like with Mary, you know what I did? Micah, what are you doing? It's your fault. All these emotions I'm feeling, they're your fault. You you know, I didn't say that, but that's that's how it comes across. I'm putting the blame on her. All she was doing was trying to make sure she got to the bathroom one time. And you can feel that coming out of Mary. Jesus, what are you doing to me? And then he responds. And at first glance, Jesus' answer might appear disrespectful, but I think there's more to it than that. I think, one, we need to consider the fact That these are the chronologically first recorded words of Jesus in all of Scripture. And I don't think that by inspiration of God, the first chronologically recorded words of his son are going to be something disrespectful. And I think it's also significant to note that in Luke chapter 2 and verse 51, which concludes this story. Luke intentionally provides a little narrative detail about the fact that Jesus went home to Nazareth with his parents and he was submissive to them. I think there's intent behind that on Luke's part to make sure we know that what Jesus does here is not an act of disrespect, that Jesus was in fact a submissive child, But I think we also need to understand what Jesus is ultimately saying. That phrase, I must be in my father's house, that's the English Standard Version, New American Standard and New International all use it as well, is also translated, I must be about my father's business in the King James and New King James. And either translation works with the Greek here. Literally, the Greek text says, in the blank of my father. It can refer to things or affairs or people, but it's best understood here as house of my father due to some parallels with language over in Luke chapter 6 and Luke chapter 19, where the temple is referred to as God's house. So what Jesus does here is he expresses interest in learning his heavenly father's trade. Go back to what is happening in his life at the age of 12. At the age of 12, he's being trained in his father's occupation. And at the age of 12, he's at the temple, and when he says, I must be about my father's business, it's as if he's saying, I need to be doing the work of my father. And you know that. Jesus is communicating to his parents, you should know that. Why should they know that? Because not everyone knows his identity. But the two people who do know it are Mary and Joseph. Because they had a messenger tell them that. And so Jesus remained in Jerusalem at the temple because he wanted to be about his father's business. And that statement's an indication that in this moment, Jesus was putting God first. He was prioritizing the will of God above everything else. Even at this young age, he understood that God deserved more than fleeting attention, that God deserved to have his heart, his mind, his soul, his strength. And that's what he's given him here at the temple. So Jesus, I like the way one author put it, Jesus was genuinely confused by his parents searching. Because if they had remembered his beginnings or recalled the words of Simeon who offered a prophecy about him when he came to the temple uh, shortly after his birth, then they should have known that the first place to look upon return to Jerusalem was the temple. Where else would the Son of God be but in the house of God because he cared that much about doing the father's business there's a lot we can learn from a 12 year old boy isn't there and I think above all else when we look at the life of this child we come to understand what it means to prioritize the Father. To put first things first, if you will. And I think we need to walk away from looking at Jesus' 12-year-old boy at the temple story with an appreciation of the fact that what we do matters because our faith is visible. One thing that stands out to me about Jesus, and I alluded to this Sunday in my sermon, is is that he was an expert in observation. In Mark chapter 1, verse 16 and 19, we're told that Jesus saw Simon, who would later be called Peter. He saw Simon and Andrew, as well as James and John, going about their everyday fishing tasks These weren't the guys that most people would want to be their disciples because they weren't highly educated and they weren't wealthy benefactors. But Jesus saw in them exactly what he was looking for in his followers. In Matthew chapter 14 and verse 14, we're told that Jesus saw a great crowd and had compassion on them. And the text goes on to tell us how he fed that crowd, which had more than 5,000 people. He fed them with just five pieces of bread, two small fish. And he saw their need as well as an opportunity to help long before his disciples did. In Luke chapter 21 and verse 2, we're told that Jesus saw a poor widow. A poor widow that went unnoticed by everyone else because she only put in two small copper coins into the offering box at the temple. And while that impoverished woman went unnoticed by everyone else because her contribution was insignificant in its amount, Jesus saw her unselfish sacrifice because she gave everything she had left. And here's my point. Jesus sees what so many don't see. And I think when we reflect on this particular account, when we reflect on what Jesus' parents taught him by taking him to the temple every year for the Passover, he saw faith lived out. He saw the same thing he saw as an adult when that paralyzed man descended from the roof. He saw the faith of that paralyzed man's friends when that man came through the roof. And every year when he went to Jerusalem, he saw the faith of his parents. And I think sometimes we de-emphasize the visibility of our faith because we're so focused on what we do. And Jesus said in Matthew chapter 6 and verse 1, that we should not practice our righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. And so we don't worry sometimes about the visibility of our faith because we we don't want to offend that verse. But Jesus condemned the scribes and the Pharisees in Matthew chapter 23, and verse 5, because they do all their deeds to be seen by others. And so we don't want to have that visible faith that can be criticized for self-indulgence. But elsewhere in Scripture we're told, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to our Father. And then keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. So there's an expectation that our faith will be visible and here in this moment of a child and his parents be that faith visible for him to learn from. The other thing I take away from this story is that your priorities are chosen. Jesus' declaration that he must be about his father's business was a declaration of priority. He was saying that from that moment on, God was going to take precedence in his life. I imagine it was an interesting wake-up call for his parents. Did you notice that verse, Luke chapter 2, it was in verse, um, oh, now I've got to pull my verse back up. You notice that at the end of the story, we're told um, that they did not understand. This is verse 50. They did not understand the saying that he spoke to them. And he went down with them in verse 51 and was submissive to them. And then there's this little tagline, and his mother treasured up all these things in her heart. You know what that tells me? That there was something about this day something about this event, something about him at 12 years old at the temple that stood out to her. It was a memorable moment in his childhood, and must be because it's the only one that we got that was kept for us. It was a memorable moment, maybe because it was the moment she knew he knew who he really was. It may be for her that moment where she goes, okay, He fully understands that he's the Son of God. And what he does is for his parents. He shows them what his priority is going to be from here on out. And you have to think, he's living what he's going to preach. Matthew chapter 6 and verse 24, Jesus taught, No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to one and despise the other. And a little while later, he says, Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. Here's a guy who's already become a carpenter. But by the time he starts his ministry, everything else is sacrificed for the sake of the kingdom. Here's somebody who at the age of 12 is demonstrating he understands what priority is going to entail. That he's going to, have to make intentional decisions. This is the guy who's one day going to say this in Luke chapter 14 verse 26, if anyone comes to me and does not hate father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, even their own life, such a person cannot be my disciple. This is someone who understands what priority is, and he's already showing it at 12 years old. I love this story. I love that this is preserved in God's word and we get a glimpse at his youth. I love that we get a challenge about being the type of parents that God expects us to be. So tonight we cover the boy in Luke chapter 2. That's all I have for this evening. And we'll continue our study next week. I know it's a little bit early, but let's close out with a word of prayer. Once again, Lord, we thank you for your son. And we thank you for recording his life. And we thank you for the lessons that we can learn from it. Lord, help us to be more like him and help us as we study his life to appreciate who he is and what he's done for us even more. It is through the name of Jesus Christ we pray. Amen.